Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trustee Table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Ravita Bowers. Ravita served as the head of school of the Center for Early Education in Los Angeles for 40 years before retiring in 2016. Prior to her retirement, for 15 consecutive summers, she was a lead faculty member at the National Association of Independent Schools Institute for New Heads, where she taught more than 700 NAIS heads of school. Upon her retirement from the center, Ravita began coaching institutional leaders and consulting with for-profit organizations, colleges, school boards, and nonprofits on issues of governance and governance best practices. She returned to the center on July 1st, 2020, as interim head of school while the school searches for its next leader. Ravita has served and continues to serve on a number of boards, including the California Association of Independent Schools, the Fedco Foundation, and the E.E. E. Ford Foundation. She attended the University of Southern California, where she received her Bachelor of Arts in Humanities, earned a master's degree in developmental psychology, as well as three lifetime teaching credentials. Ravita, it is such a pleasure to have you at the table today. It's my pleasure. So independent schools continue to face challenges outside of their immediate control, such as the pandemic and racial injustice, just to name a few. Given how long you have served as a head of school, what are some effective ways that you've seen boards engage with their school communities around these kinds of important issues? Well, I think it's important for boards to have at least an annual conversation on the topic. A lot of boards have put diversity committees on their board or a diversity task force or a DEI task force, or they're bringing in an annual opportunity for the board to have some professional development around these issues. And I think that's critically important. But I think also boards are speaking out more in ways that they never spoke out before on diversity issues. And as schools are planning activities for professional development for faculty and staff or professional development opportunities for members of the community, they're joining in and being a voice in those activities as well. And I think that's really powerful when the community sees trustees engaged in those those opportunities, right? Because it, it really sends a strong message that we are all in this together, that we all value this, that we are all mission-driven toward that important work that we're doing. Right. And really good boards are communicating between board meetings. They're sending community-wide either letters or parts of school magazines, not just waiting for the annual report to let their voice be heard. And so as they're having discussions and conversations around these issues, they're sending out letters to the community. The board chair here at the center sent out a wonderful letter at the beginning of the school year that addressed issues around Black Lives Matter and around the mission of the school on issues of diversity. And that message coming from the board meant a lot to community members. And he sent it out community-wide. So it went out to parents, it went out to faculty, staff, and administration, went out to grandparents, went out to alum families, and went out to alums, our grown alums as well. Wow. And actually, that that's a great example. And it's, it's also the perfect segue to my next question, which is oftentimes it's really the head of school 
who is the most forward-facing person in the community. So how can boards communicate effectively with stakeholders without veering into that boundary-crossing place that we try to avoid? So let me give you an example. Every Friday, I send a letter out to those 4,000 people I just talked about, grandparents, uh, parents, faculty, staff, and administration. And I will often message something in my, my Friday letter every week having to do with an activity with the board. Mm-hmm. But then we have to remember that the two leadership arms of the school are the head of school and my admin team and the board chair and the board. Those are the two leadership arms. So we need to find ways to give our boards opportunities to speak out about issues. And many more boards have developed communication strategies where sometimes it's a committee sending something out to the school following a committee meeting, or sometimes after a board meeting, the talking points that are most important for the community to hear, the board chair will get with our communications director or meet with me and we'll talk about sending out a message to the entire community as well. So I think more regular communications from boards and also developing scripts and talking points following board meetings because trustees that are out and about in the community need those talking points to remind themselves of the important and seminal messages that need to come from the board to members of the community. Mm-hmm. And, and that idea of us speaking with with one voice is so important right now, um, particularly as you know we're faced with the pandemic and sort of this continued crisis leadership that we've been in where we've had to pivot so often. Making sure we're all on the same page is really important. Right. And it's also important for us to remember that not all of our trustees are current parents. Some are non-parents. Some are educators from other schools that are serving on our board. So we need to make sure that their voices and their opportunities to advocate, to be ombudsman, to speak on behalf of the boards are well-informed as well. Um, actually, one, one of my favorite things that you've ever said is that trustees need to be both leaders and storytellers in their school communities. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what this looks like in practice? Yes. So for example, I'm back at the center this year. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're continuing our capital campaign efforts and also a robust annual campaign. So one of the first things I did when I returned was invited every member of the board to join me on a capital campaign solicitation, which they've very eagerly been doing. But one of the things that I did was there had not been as robust a trustee orientation as in past years. So I worked with the governance committee to do a trustee orientation with them for trustees that have been on the board for the last three years. And I also did a special session for spouses and partners of board members, because I think we often don't remember that they are carrying more of the parent burden in the school, but they need to understand the work that their spouses and partners are doing on behalf of the board. So we've had these wonderful educational opportunities for board members to practice telling their stories before they get in front of the school community. And also 
before they go on a capital campaign solicitation, because that often begins with asking that potential donor to tell us the story of how they came to be involved in the school and what their experience has been like so far. And these have been really compelling opportunities for trustees to tell their story in addition to hearing the story of the family that we're meeting with. That, that's a really, that's a great example. And, and I like it that you couched it in terms of like a capital campaign. Do you see that that idea of, of storytelling or, or just being able to get out in front of the community um, and sort of practicing what you're going to say, let's say, you know, whether it's something really hard, like we've changed our, our schedule again <laughs> and we have parents who are really upset that we are hybrid or we're back, you know, we're not doing face-to-face anymore. Have you seen that that practicing and that sort of making sure that we're speaking with one voice, really helping constituents making sense of of, you know, whatever those decisions are or those initiatives are for the school? Let me give you an example. This, we did launch our annual fund this year. Uh, And of course we're still remote. And we worked with the development office, really talented and our annual fund director to launch an 80 hour annual fund drive. Mm -hmm. And the messaging came from the school, from me, from the board, We uh, videotaped stories that we put online as we pushed out our annual fund message. It was one of the most successful annual fund drives we've ever had in the history of the school because the messaging was coming from all the leadership in the school, talking about what we were spending on COVID, talking about additional expenses this year. And our response in 80 hours was from 75% of the school community and the most participation we've ever had from grandparents, from grown alums, from alum families, because we've been including them in our community-wide events since last spring and embracing the broader community as long as we're still remote. And I think we'll continue to have remote options for people who are all over the country. And in fact, grandparents joining us from all over the world. And I think that's really important. And the speaking of storytelling, tomorrow night is our annual state of the school meeting when all of our parents are invited by the board of trustees to hear about the budget of the school to increase their own financial literacy as parents and community members. So they will start tomorrow with a meeting with the faculty, staff and administration, with the chair of our search committee, the president of the board and the board treasurer. And then tomorrow evening we'll meet with all the parents and tell the story of how the operating budget is being crafted, how the tuition increase is being seen, how the expenses for next year are being projected, all critically important stories for our school fiduciaries to be conversant with and to be able to tell in clear ways to the rest of the community, including the faculty, staff, and administration. And that's an annual event for us this time of the year, every year. And and I love the way that you've like brought in that innovation piece, right? That I feel like the pandemic, in some ways, if if we had to say that something good came out of it, is this idea that it forced us to be more innovative around technology and how we bring people together. 
and and finding ways to sort of increase that that connectivity with folks. Um, Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I know is that we're going to do much more remotely in connection events going forward because they've been so successful. Absolutely. In fact, I, I just had a really interesting conversation with Heather Hurl from EMA, and and she was saying that you know how we even do admissions from now on um, using technology is is here to stay. You know whether the pandemic ends, you know next month or three years from now. So so I think that's a really important point. So that was a great example of a community engagement event, and I know that the center has created so many really interesting opportunities for community engagement in the past. So can you share um, some of the more compelling examples with our listeners? Yes. So we have a young adult alumni association that meets every other month. There are over 21 alums and they've started doing remote sessions with alums all over the country. So we'll have 60 or 80 alums on those meetings every other month. So in the spring, They hosted a series of community engagement events, not only for alums, but for the whole community. They did a sing-along one night uh, Mm -hmm. that I participated in. (laughs) They did nutrition classes. They did meditation classes. They did some cooking classes. And the entire community of the school was invited. And then when I came back in June, or July, actually, July 1st, We kicked off the summer with engagement events that each of our adult affinity groups chaired and hosted. And we invited those same groups, those 4,000 people, grandparents, grown alums, current parents, faculty, staff, and administration. And each affinity group, we have six of them, hosted an event. At the end of the summer, I was approached by wonderful group of parents who wanted to start an anti-racism affinity group. And after a couple of weeks of conversation, we decided instead of an affinity group, because they were all of very diverse backgrounds, to create an anti-racism interest group, which we launched this fall, and it has been enormously successful. And so we started the year with a community engagement and education series that we launched. The first speaker was Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he was moderated by Sean Harper from the Race and Equity Center at the Graduate School of Education at USC. We had over 1,400 people on that engagement event, and they've continued since then. The next one was Cory Booker, who joined us for an experience about politics and has gotten grandparents and all of those community members engaged as well. We then started to do things like have speakers on mental health, uh, on wellness. We just had uh, a speaker last week when we had a speaker come on and talk about the importance of children's friendships in the middle of a pandemic. So we began with those affinity groups, then had Cory Booker, then we had just the week before, a couple of weeks before the election, Bob Shrum and Mike Murphy from the Center for the Political Future come and talk about the election, had a wonderful 
wonderful session. And Dr. Pedro Naguera, the Dean of the School of Ed at USC, came and talked about racism in schools. We've also invited other educators, other heads of schools from around the state to join us and sometimes done collaborative events with other schools. And in all of those, our trustee voices have been prevalent and our trustee participation has been outstanding in people joining those events. And as we go into breakout rooms, seeing that the entire community is represented in those breakout rooms as well. That's fantastic. And I, I love to hear how involved the, the board members have been. Just to clarify for our listeners, though, those events that you just described, were those part of the anti-racist interest group or were those just part of like the community education Both. initiative? Okay. Uh, the Pedro Neguera event was the kickoff event for the anti-racist groups. And now they've had three of their five meetings during the year that have been extraordinarily well attended. They had a guest moderator for the first three, and now we're going to continue with our breakout sessions for the last two meetings. Michael Thompson did the meeting on understanding the social lives of children in a pandemic and talking about best friends and worst enemies. That was last mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. And he did a spectacular, warm, engaging meeting with parents and grandparents and teachers talking about how much he believes that these children are gonna bounce right back when they get back in schools and are able to join their friends and their teachers on campuses. And then next month, we have Dr. Christine Carter, who's gonna do something on finding peace. And then we had a, an engagement event with our alumni hosting that event for anyone who was interested with Art Billiger, who was the founder of Working Nation and the president of Working Nation, Jane Oates, about the future of work in America, which of course was timely for our parents whose businesses have faltered and our alums who are coming out of college and graduate school looking for work. And of course, our grandparents who are worried about what the future of work will look like for their grandchildren and parents for their children. That sounds like your community engagement program is really leveraging all of those amazing networks that you have, both both local and, and worldwide, to, to bring these amazing folks to, to the center. Well, it's been far more successful than we ever envisioned. And now we have the opportunity because we understand also the disadvantages of remote but think about it, think about a parent in the busy metropolis of Los Angeles, rushing to get home from work, feed their kids, and then turn around and drive back to school for a parent meeting. Mm -hmm. I think we'll keep remote options alive and well in the future so that working parents in particular have the opportunity to join and grandparents from all over the country in all different time zones, will be able to join us as well. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you've, you've given us so many of these wonderful, practical examples of, of, you know, increasing community engagement. So, you know, given your experience in this, what are some first steps ahead of school and the board chair could take to design more opportunities to increase community engagement in, in their schools? Well, you know what, I think it's really important as you're looking at the master calendar in a year to publish the events 
that you're going to have community members at and see if you can't get a board member at every single one of them. You know, when we do our new parent orientation, we invite board members to come and speak. When we do our admission open houses, we invite a board member or two to come and be a part of the audience so that they hear the messaging and they hear the questions that prospective families are asking about the school. It informs our work and it informs their work as well. Those letters that follow board meetings about important events or decisions the board has made. The annual state of the school meeting, trustees joining faculty members for different things. As we're doing a search for the next school leader this year, board members have joined faculty member meetings when we've talked about how the search is being structured. And then a letter went out to the school community talking about the results of a pulse survey we did with faculty, staff, and administration, and a different pulse survey with uh, parents about what they wanted to see in the next head of school and what they would like the school and the search committee to be thinking about as they do that search. And then trustees being invited to rep the board at very special events. And our new parent party every fall that brings all the host families, the parent association and the new parents who are new to the school together is co-hosted by the parent association and the board of trustees. And it's one of those board events where the board turns out in force as do the parent association board members and the host families. So just mingling together and being sure that we represent the other leadership arm of the school in those events is critically important, not only for people to see that they're there and hear their voice, but for their edification and their further education and professional development about what the community is really thinking at any given time. Mm -hmm. I think that's critically important for them to be up and current on the issues. The board will not understand how problems in the school get solved unless they hear from the people who are experiencing the problems. And I think that's really critical as part of their trustee education. I couldn't agree more. Um, Ravita, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a joy having this conversation with you. And I know that the insights you've shared with us are going to be incredibly helpful to our members. It's my pleasure. I have always loved being a trustee on boards and working with trustees as a head of school. It's a real privilege. I agree. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.